uh, after my parents immigrated at every it seemed like at every significant juncture of our family's life there were people of faith to welcome us is to engage on, on the national level um, and think through yeah you know that sounds good in theory but that actually doesn't work in a local church and i can tell you why because <laughs> i'm right in the middle of it what it means to be evangelical is in fact to be good news people and uh, the term is not an american concoction and trust is absolutely essential because what other currency do we have there's trust problems within the community uh, as evangelicalism has kind of sorted out into different streams and tribes within the evangelical movement that have come to question one another Well, Walter, welcome to the ECFA podcast. We're so grateful you can be with us today. Thank you, Michael, for having me on. Good. Well, hey, let's just start with, tell us a little bit about you uh, and also at the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals. Yeah, so the National Association of Evangelicals is um, an organization that's been around since 1942. And currently we represent uh, evangelical denominations, about 40 different denominations from Pentecostal to Presbyterian, yeah, Brethren. Baptists, Mennonites, Methodists, I mean, it's a whole range of uh, streams of traditions uh, with a, a core of evangelical faith, and I'm sure we'll get to the conversation of what that means. Um, but in addition to uh, the local church is represented through the denomination, we also think about the church more broadly in its uh, various forms of work. So the membership includes um, institutions, uh, nonprofit organizations, missions organizations, educational institutions, seminaries and Christian colleges, uh, and a variety of um, types of ministries that once again hold to a certain set of core beliefs and expressions of those beliefs in a wide range of, of um, ministries and services. Um, and so this, you know, it's really, um, astounding thing to to witness the breadth of God's work uh, in this world and through the the organizations and churches represented by the NAE and uh, as for myself uh, I've been in this position for two years I call myself a pandemic president I <laughs> I began my installation uh, was on March 4 2020 and then the following week the world shut down <laughs> Uh, and so it's been an interesting uh, experience, um, uh, obviously fraught with challenges the last couple of years, but also incredible opportunities. That's exactly right. Well, Walter, congratulations <laughs> on your time. Uh, so excited to have you on the podcast because I know myself, like many others, we just admire your leadership uh, during this time. You and I actually have that in common. I know we've talked about that before too, being yeah. pan pandemic presidents. We're in that club. Yes. <laughs> so uh, just really grateful for your leadership and, and really the work of NAE. And it was sharing with you, this is what we call the Behind the Seal podcast, where we go behind the scenes. And so one of the things uh, I just wanted to invite you into is to go behind the scenes and maybe tell folks, uh, like, what really motivated you to take on this role of NAE, especially in such significant times? I mean, no one saw the pandemic coming, but yeah. significant times nonetheless. You're a local church pastor. You have so many other things going on. Uh, what was really the draw for you to step into this role? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, going behind uh, a, a bit to the kind of personal journey toward it, I did not grow up in an evangelical household. Um, mm. My uh, parents immigrated uh, from Korea. Uh, my father was actually a refugee who had escaped uh, communist China uh, and uh, made his way to South Korea, literally crossing a river in a barrel. I mean, his wow. journey was quite harrowing. Uh, but when my parents met in South Korea, um, one of the things that was remarkable during that time period of the Korean War and its immediate aftermath was the place of people of faith. Um, and long before I even knew uh, the term evangelical, or my parents even understood the term evangelical. Uh, World Relief uh, actually had set up uh, distribution centers uh, within uh, South Korea at that time, uh, where uh, food was being distributed. Di distributed, and um, they represented a form of evangelical faith that was vital. And over time, I came to learn that World Relief is the humanitarian arm of the uh, National Association of Evangelicals. Um, and so 
the, this experience of being introduced to the evangelical tradition continued um, in America uh, after my parents immigrated and uh, we were growing up in the country. At every, it seemed like at every significant juncture of our family's life, there were people of faith to welcome us. Um, Irish Catholic family in whose basement we lived in the Bronx as uh, as as a little kid. I remember the, their kids showed me how to get to the uh, park and how to ride my big wheel. And um, <laughs> I think of the Lutheran pastor to help my parents as uh, immigrants to this country navigate life here. And 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 once again for me, uh, the introduction to faith was um, of a evangelical youth pastor who uh, in my high school years. Um, really presented a vision of faith that was lived out very personally and very winsomely. Um, and so that that journey to evangelicalism was marked by a, a really generous spirit that combined word and deed in a very compelling way. And then I came to discover that um, the National Association of Evangelicals was composed of uh, churches and institutions that really have this as part of their DNA. Uh, and so when I became a, a board member several years back uh, through the connection at, at Park Street Church, uh, where I used to serve in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, that was um, instrumental in the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals, um, that connection led to being on the board and that opportunity on the board led to an increased involvement uh, in the work of the NAE and then this opportunity. So in, in many ways, um, you know, I think of myself as an accidental evangelical, but in the providence <laughs> of God, yes, it is something that he has orchestrated. I did not grow up into this, uh, grow up in this tradition, but um, it is a tradition that has marked a kind of hospitality, generosity, and clarity uh, about what it means to have saving faith in Christ. What an amazing story, too. And I just think of, Walter, that's such a good reminder for us as leaders and organizations that we serve. Like, we just never know who's on the other side of, uh, of who we're serving. And it's not just about what we believe, but, but really everything that we do and how we show the love of Christ. That's an awesome story. Thanks. Thanks. I also wanted to ask you, too, uh, there may be folks like me who are wondering, uh, like, how do you balance it all? <laughs> because you're not just leading this really significant association, but also you're still very full-time in your role uh, as a local church pastor. And many people who are who are listening, maybe they're juggling some responsibilities, different responsibilities as well. So yeah, give us some behind the scenes of that as well. How do you, how do you manage to juggle it all? Yeah, I think for... Um... Much of the time during the pandemic, this kind of dual role that I've had as um, president of the NAE, as well as um, being uh, a working local pastor, has actually been mutually uh, informative and beneficial, because a lot of the challenges that existed uh, in, in, in the nation, whether it's the issue of polarization or how to navigate the closing down or reopening of churches, um, the difficulties and challenges of um, race in America, mm -hmm. uh, the, all these things on, on the national level, um, I, I had the opportunity to think about and labor in a local context in which these discussions were profoundly important and challenging, uh, but they were not detached from life stories, yes. the actual stories of people uh, whom I know and love and I'm seeking to uh, bring God's word to and the spirit of the Lord uh, manifest in a life that um, is rich in its affection for one another in Christ and yet encountering all these challenges. And and so what I experienced on the local level would inform and keep rooted what I was seeking to do on a national level and vice versa, the opportunities to engage on, on the national level um, and think through, yeah, you know, that sounds good in theory, but that actually doesn't work in a local church. And I can tell you why, because uh -huh, I'm uh -huh. right in the middle of it. Um, I think it's been really helpful to have that dual uh, experience and context uh, inform one another. Challenging, absolutely. Uh, 
enriching, definitely, um, but very, very helpful. Good. Well, thanks for giving us a little bit of that behind the scenes look. And you're doing a phenomenal job. We're, we're really cheering you on. The, the work of NAE is just so important. And we value that. And, uh, you know, I couldn't uh, not take advantage of just being able to be in this conversation with you to, to ask some tough questions, too, uh, because these are times where um, I guess the word that comes to me is even just thinking about identity. There's a lot of questions that leaders today are asking about identity and even the word evangelical and our movement and what people are processing and walking through. Uh, but my first question related to identity is just around we see that with NAE, there's sort of the, there's these really important dual roles, right? Of uh, taking bold, courageous positions on issues that are important to culture, while at the same time, uh, you mentioned the beautiful diversity that exists even within the evangelical movement and uh, providing opportunities for unity. So balancing both courage and uh, to take some of those bold bold statements and stances while at the same time unity. How do you manage to, to juggle both? <laughs> oh, wow. That, that is um, a simple question to ask and frame. It's an obvious question to ask, an important question to ask, and so difficult to answer. Um, you know, there are certain principles that <clears throat> could apply, but the lived reality is one of complexity. And a solution that works or an approach that works in one context doesn't work in another. And and I think, you know, anyone who's worked in a local church context or um, a complex organization recognizes that. And, and really, anyone who has um, human relationships recognizes mm -hmm. that I mean, the way that you parent one child is different than the way that you parent another, even if there's the same spirit uh, uh, and desire to nurture others. And, and so, um, you know, when you you asked that question, I think about the dual uh, roles that any leader, uh, Christian leader would have to have of being prophetic and pastoral. Um, but the challenge is what is prophetic in one context um, may not be pastoral and vice versa. So, you know, I think of um, situations of trauma and abuse to speak out prophetically um, is absolutely important, but to a victim, uh, of um, trauma and abuse, um, that prophetic stance is actually a pastoral stance. Mm. It, it's a stance that nurtures. And the same issue when it comes to um, the racial complexities of our country. Um, what might seem to be a bold, prophetic, challenging, uncomfortable stance or position or comment um, for a different community is absolutely essential to feel heard and pastored. Um, so it, it's really difficult because it's not merely trying to manage, you know, is this a statement that's prophetic or is this a statement that's pastoral? You can make one statement and it's simultaneously going to be viewed as non-pastoral or overly prophetic and vice versa, depending on the hearer. And that really makes it a lot more complex. So, you know, some of the underlying maybe things that guide me, I, I come back to James so often, James chapter one. Dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Um, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness uh, of God. And um, boy, if if God's people could live that out, um, I think we would be in such a better place, um, not only within our community, but our community's relationship um, externally. And so I, I think um, the ability to take a bold stance in any one situation or the ability to produce unity in any one situation really is a product of a posture and a lifetime uh, of credibility building. Um, your ability to take a bold stance, your ability to really be believed in this pursuit of common ground really is a function, not of a technique, um, but a lifetime commitment um, to pray for unity, to listen with cu genuine curiosity to dissenting opinions, uh, to treat people with dignity, uh, to have the humility to recognize that um, you don't have all the answers, uh, and to be constructive in, in our comments, to think about 
for whose benefit am I making this statement? Um, is it to just relieve tension within myself? I got to say something, or is this truly going to be beneficial? You know, as Paul states, um, not not everything that's permissible is in fact beneficial. Not everything that could be said is in fact constructive. In First Corinthians ten, so um, I, I think there are these principles that guide. You know, the, that credibility comes from. Uh, a genuine, uh, humble spirit, listening with curiosity, um, clarity on what is important uh, needs to include finding common ground, even as you're trying to challenge uh, what is, um, you know, before you, um, and seeking to be constructive for whose benefit, you know, to glorify God. Um, so, in any given moment. Um, you know, statements may or may not be made, um, but if the underlying attitude, um, the underlying posture, uh, is as as I've you know, articulated, is, is the ones that drive you. I think that is absolutely essential um, for navigating this kind of complex work. love so much of what you just said, but I, I, another question would be, you know, just how do we, um, because that posture is so important and kind of in an ongoing sense, like these times can also be just really hard and really draining and maybe all of the reserves that we had built up to have that posture uh, are suddenly depleted. You know, how do we continue to stay uh, encouraged in that way? How do we continue to reinforce that posture? Hmm. I think um, coming back to what informed uh, the early church, uh, and we see this time and time again, their sense that the momentary light afflictions will be outweighed by this eternal weight of glory. And um, as real and as challenging as uh, the situation may be in the temporal context, um, that God really, in the end, will be victorious. We can be assured of that, um, that his purposes will prevail, uh, and that our place in this is, is one in which he secures, ultimately, the fruit that he desires. Um, and every once in a while, I, I have to be honest, there, there is a sense of the crushing weight mm -hmm. of the responsibilities. Um, the crushing weight that if I just don't get this right, um, am I going to leave a wake of chaos and destruction <laughs> that that um, will besmirch the name of, of of Christ? And that that possibility is real. So I'm not diminishing in some kind of Pollyannish way that all will be made right. Uh, there are real consequences, but the grace of God is so great that even my failures are wrapped up in His faithfulness ultimately. And that, that, that produces a tremendous amount of um, confidence, but it also produces the sense that um, the, the, the work is not intended to be immediate. You know, the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, was not answered in Jesus' own lifetime. Mm. And if the <laughs> Son of God himself could not accomplish all of that prayer in the three years of his earthly ministry, who am I to think <laughs> that three years, three decades would even be sufficient? God has ordained things uh, to be one in which the kingdom unfolds over time uh, as that mustard seed. Um, and we will be surprised at the ways that it sprouts, but we need to bear patiently with the fact that our timing is not his timing and that we, we just play our role in the unfolding of God's kingdom. That's exactly right. Those are some, just some great scriptural anchors and great practical reminders, I think, for all of us as leaders and helping us have that proper perspective um, and health. And so I'm so grateful for those words that you shared. And I do want to switch gears a little bit and come back to another kind of identity type conversation. And that is, 
just even uh, at a basic level, the importance of the word evangelical in our names. <laughs> so you're the yeah. leader of the National Association of Evangelicals. Here we're the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. Uh, in times like these, we do see for various reasons, folks saying, you know, maybe that that name is not for us anymore and uh, turning away from the use of the word evangelical. So tell us a little bit about what you see there. Maybe even start with a, a basic definition of how do we define who is an evangelical? Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, as uh, you know, and many of our listeners may know, the term evangelical uh, comes uh, from ultimately the Greek term uh, for good news, uh, euangelion, and then uh, over time becomes uh, anglicized into evangelical. So what it means to be evangelical is, in fact, to be good news people. And uh, the term is not an American concoction. I mean, um, 500 years ago, before uh, the Protestants were known as Protestants in Germany, they were known as evangelicals. That was the preferred self-identification of Martin Luther. And his belief was a deep desire that there was a, a renewing movement in the church to get back to the good news of Christ, salvation for all, the proclamation of it, having it inform everyday life, uh, having the scriptures um, be a part uh, of everyday life. Uh, and um, the cleansing and purification of the church. And so the term evangelical, um, you know, essentially is about coming back to some core convictions. And and how do we flesh that out? Well, you know, as uh, the historian uh, Bebbington from England has marked out in very helpful ways, you know, to be an evangelical means to have a commitment to a very high view of Scripture and its authority in our life, uh, to note the importance of a conversion to Christ that was uh, real and personal. Um, I think of Wesley's own, uh, John Wesley's own conversion, which was prototypically evangelical, this great leader uh, of the British evangelical movement, talking about how his heart was strangely warmed by this sense that he had been forgiven by Christ of his sins. So this, this sense of personal conversion to Christ and 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 that brings us to this real high view of the cross as the the work of God in this world to secure the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of our lives. So being Bible-centered, having this sense of conversion in whatever form it takes, dramatic or over time, uh, a, 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 an understanding that the cross is kind of cross-centered life. Um, of, of forgiveness through Christ. Um, and, and actually, um, the sense that all of this is not merely about personal transformation, but about our activism in this world. Mm. And I often think about Jesus um, in his introduction of himself to the world in Luke chapter 4. Uh, he uh, unrolls the scroll and as he introduces himself to uh, the congregation, the synagogue um, in Nazareth that thought they knew him as a child of Nazareth, um, he chooses to unroll the scroll of Isaiah to chapter 61. And the, he, Jesus could have chosen any passage. He, he could have, in his sovereignty, introduced himself any way he wanted to the, to the world. What he stood for, why he came into the world, he unrolls it. And there we've, we find that the Spirit of God has anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. Mm. Liberty to the prisoner, for sight for the blind, you know, and, and, and this sense of freedom for the oppressed. Now, it didn't mention the forgiveness of sins. Of course, the ministry of Jesus makes it very, very clear that the good news f is fundamentally uh, the forgiveness of sins that leads to all of these things. But he chose to emphasize these things. I think of Jesus as the first evangelical because he was the first proclaimer of this good news. Sure. And the good news he talked about was one that really saw the social implications of this good news, not only that he proclaimed, but that he was and is. So this sense of um, the social uh, outworking uh, of the gospel uh, in the transformation uh, of the poor, uh, the liberation of, of those in prison. 
um, working with those on the margins um, with disabilities. This is essential to evangelical identity. So I go at length about that because, you know, the term really sociologically and in the political discourse in which we currently live in the news cycles, it is easy to see ways in which the term evangelical has been reduced to a political affiliation or a cultural stance or a historic semblance of civic religion in America. And um, that does a great disservice to Jesus, who I think of as the first evangelical, the first good news proclaimer uh, and the richness of that tradition. So I, I'm not ready to give it up because whatever the term really captures this sense over time that um, God, God proclaims good news and it's personally, individually, institutionally, societally transformative. Um, I don't want to be a part of that. And, and I think the work of recovering the centrality of what it means to be an evangelical is essential. So good. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you covered some of those points, especially there at the end, because I was going to ask you, you know, well, what are we to do with, yes, it's a beautiful biblical term, but what are we to do, you know, with some of the baggage and some of the things? And so I guess at a real practical level to Walter for leaders who even wrestle with using that word to identify themselves or identify their organization, when they're asked that question, you know, do you consider yourself an evangelical or why is that term in your name? Whenever there is some of this other baggage and things that are attached to it, how do we articulate that well? How do we respond? Yeah, <clears throat> I think there are, um, you know, three things. One is to kind of go back to what, what do we mean by evangelical? Um, and if it is as I articulated earlier, then um, I would say I would love, this is this is what it means for me to be a follower of Jesus, to have the, the, these commitments and, and a posture of engagement and not um, disassociation from society and culture, but a deep engagement to bless the culture. So that's one thing. The second thing is, um, you know, it, the sense of being connected. The younger generation, I think, is really coming back to that. Um, I think there's a reason why liturgy is finding a resurgence. Mm -hmm. I think there's a reason why um, architecture is being reconsidered, of sacred architecture, and, and a, a deep desire in the fragmentation of our society to be rooted in something deeper than the latest tweet. <laughs> uh, and uh, this desire to be connected to history. Um, I think it is absolutely um, vital for us to be connected to the historic tradition of evangelicalism, to learn from past um, successes and failures. Um, so, you know, the second reason I would give is not only because, you know, evangelicalism is, you know, a wonderful identification of the spirit of faith that I would wish to affirm, but it also is a connection to um, centuries of God's re work of renewal. And I would even argue, going back to the very way that Christ himself um, presented himself to the world. The, the, the third thing that I would um, suggest is uh, it connects us not only to the depth of history, um, but to the breadth of what's God doing in this world. It's a very American thing. The, to jettison a term when it's inconvenient for us as Americans. One of the first things I did as president of the NAE was, um, even before I just started my, my term, it was kind of a pre-work of my work as president, I attended the World Evangelical um, Alliance's General Assembly in Jakarta, Indonesia, back in November of 2019. And there, um, you know, representatives from 90 different countries uh, were in attendance, um, 800 delegates from 90 different countries, representing hundreds of millions of evangelicals. And there was a panel discussion um, uh, there about um, the state of evangelicalism in the world. It was composed of people from Africa and Asia, from South America, from Europe. There wasn't a North American on it. Hmm. And um, it was real vibrant sense of God at work. And they all came to the conclusion of, regardless of what's happening in America, 
the term evangelical is very meaningful, fruitful, and important for what's happening in the global church. And I thought, walking away, I want to hold on to this term because why in the world would I wish to disassociate myself from the work of God, good news work of God that's happening with my brothers and sisters throughout the world? So it's not only a connection to the historic depth of this renewal movement, it's a connection to the global breadth right now. And uh, I, I think we owe it to our brothers and sisters to move from this kind of patriarchal view of American Christians mm -hmm. to a view of partnership and to humbly acknowledge, yeah, let's get this term evangelical right because we want to be in partnership with what's happening in the global church. And I think that's absolutely exciting to own the term evangelical uh, as a, 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 a note, an expression of affectionate solidarity with God's work in this world. You've given us a lot to think about <laughs> there. I think that's great perspective. Um, you know, another kind of identity question or, you know, trends question. And, you know, I've talked a, a little bit about this before, too, but just as it relates to kind of names and labels and things, many leaders are also hearing more so this term ex-evangelical. Um, and, uh, you know, no definitions are really important and that can mean different things in different contexts. But, uh, I know a lot of leaders are, are wrestling with that as well as people are either maybe leaving the faith entirely or certain aspects or walking away from, um, just some of the core tenets, uh, of evangelicalism. And so we're in this age of, you know, deconstruction, if you will, and all. And so, yeah, give us a little bit of a snapshot of, first of all, what's going on, uh, actually what's going on, and then maybe we can also talk about how do we best respond to that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's the whole ex-evangelical movement. Uh, uh, you used the term deconstruction and this kind of loss of faith uh, in faith itself, uh, in the expression of faith as experience within the evangelical tradition, oftentimes, and predominantly so, I, I would say, within the um, experience of you know, white conservative um, evangelicalism, which I, I, I take some care to mention that, not to cast aspersions um, on on that segment of, of Christianity, but it is a segment of Christianity. Sure. So as as I you know mentioned, I'm, I'm, I'm the son of refugee and immigrants, I'm an Asian American man, and um, the evangelicalism that exists in uh, immigrant churches or historic black church or uh, other segments uh, of uh, our society is evangelicalism. Um, but this experience of um, cultural Christianity that um, found itself expressed um, in the evangelical tradition, uh, I, I, I first I would wish to say my concern is not so much about a label. Despite being president of the NAE, my concern really is for people's faith, their experience of the love of God, uh, their ability to enter into the community of God and to be part of the work of the kingdom of God. And I think it's a real thing that damage has occurred in the lives of people. And that absolutely grieves me. Mm. I have worked long enough as a pastor um, to understand that, yes, churches are full of sinners. Redeemed sinners, hopefully, and in the process of ever greater redemption, but nonetheless sinners who have inflicted tremendous harm on one another. Mm. So my first posture would be... Um, one of grief, not of judgment. It, it would be one of acknowledgement and um, desire to listen. As, as we began our conversation, to listen with curiosity, um, to understand that, you know, the job first and foremost is not just to correct, it's, it's to care. 
Mm. And that care needs to take seriously the hurts. But I would also say, um, again, because I've come outside of the evangelical tradition, I've had a certain set of experiences that have been incredibly powerful, um, life-giving. And I wouldn't be in this work if I did not experience Christ and the church in those ways. And so my deeper desire is not to bring people back into the fold of evangelicalism. It is to hope that there could be a reintroduction to God and to the Christ who really is a proclaimer of good news, who may have very challenging things to say about one's own sin. Not only that you've been sinned against, but you are part of a world in which you sin. But there is deep, deep um, uh, redemptive power in, in who Christ is and who, as imperfect as it is lived out, um, the church is, um, and that the work of this kingdom uh, that God has given to us is one that really is uh, for the blessing of the cities in which we live, the communities in which we live. Uh, and so a reintroduction to that God, to that Christ, um, I, I think that that's at the heart of my desire. So yes, to grieve, to, to listen um, and care for rather than critique, um, that's the first posture. And the second posture that I would have is I would wish to reintroduce in a journey of mutual discovery um, what it is that we mean that Jesus Christ is, has come into the world um, to save, to redeem, and that the church is intended to be his people. Yeah, and I think what I'm hearing you say is that's a bit of uh, that concept of reconstruction, right? <laughs> but as we see the term like deconstruction, even just on a practical level, you know, yeah, what what does that mean? Is that always bad? Are there good aspects to that? Is that a biblical thing? Uh, just as leaders, as we see that term, uh, I'd love for you to just to shed some light on that for us. Yeah, I mean, as terms um, go, you know, deconstruction is a, a general ter term that has been used in all sorts of philosophical movements or just, you know, just a general term to say we got to break things apart. Um, and there is an edifice, a, a life experience that needs to be broken down into its parts to understand why there is this experience of trauma and disappointment and therefore rejection. Um, and part of that deconstructive work is, <clears throat> I would say, the work that all Christians are called to. I think of Romans chapter 7 and uh, what Paul does in deconstructing his own soul. Mm. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin? You know, <laughs> this sense that the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, I do. So Scripture actually gives us a example of deconstruction that goes down to the very marrow of the soul. But chapter 7 of Romans is followed by chapter 8, this amazing chapter of reconstruction. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our spirits cry out, Abba, Father. Um, and this, this beautiful sense that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Um, so if the work of deconstruction leaves us in cynicism, in hopelessness, um, if the work of deconstruction doesn't have a larger goal of rerouting us, um, then, then I think it is a kind of a, a, an impulse of despair, part of this kind of culture of despair that in and of itself is powerful because it is necessary, right? To, to take seriously any problem that we have, we have to deconstruct our families of origin, our life experiences, <laughs> our own proclivities and personalities, and our own sin nature, whether or not you want to use that term anymore <laughs> as an ex-evangelical or a person sure. repudiated faith. I think we can all agree that there is something amiss in, in our lives. Um, but we, we are never intended to live in that place of despair. Um, we are intended to reconstruct. Um, and no one's on the same time frame. There's no like, okay, this is, you know, deconstruction for a month and then followed by reconstruction next month. 
I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And that's where the personal relationships are so important to journey with other people. Maybe it's a month, maybe it's three months, th you know, three years. Um, but the persistence of leading and, and walking with people out of cynicism to some reconstructive effort of, of building faith back up. Right. There's a real healthy aspect to all that process. And, um, and just how do we, how do we come along? I like that you use the word, it's a journey for different people. And um, whether it's friends or coworkers, you know, others that come to us and just say, you know, being honest, I have some questions or I'm walking through a process. Like what is the right way to, what's a biblical approach to really being able to be that community that journeys together? How do we do that well? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, there's this really interesting scene of uh, in Acts uh, where Paul and Barnabas um, part ways and they have an argument over what to do with John Mark. And uh, John Mark had lost his nerve uh, on that first missionary journey. Uh, Paul and Barnabas brought him along and invested in this you know, young leader, uh, up-and-coming uh, leader within uh, early Christianity. And uh, we don't know all the details of it, but there was a, a, a loss of nerve. Hmm. And Paul's like, ah, you know, the mission's too important. We got to go. Um, and there's truth to that. So I'm not here to adjudicate whether or not Paul uh, or Barnabas was right. I think they were both right because both are needed in the kingdom of God. The mission needs to proceed. And so Paul did that. But Barnabas chose the route that while it is true that the mission needs to proceed, um, there are people that in and of themselves are the mission. Hmm. And he chose the way as the son of encouragement to bring Mark back. And as church history tells us, that worked. Because at the end of Paul's life in Second Timothy, who does he want to visit him in prison just before he dies? He asks Timothy, can you send Mark along? Hmm. Have him bring some of the, the scrolls of scripture, you know, something wow. warm to wear. <laughs> and, and, and we learn from church history that this John Mark that lost his nerve, but Barnabas journeyed with, restored to faith over years of walking together, was the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. I mean, what an extraordinary example in scripture itself. So here are the things I take away. It's a commitment of time. It will take time. It's a commitment of proximity. You can't do this from afar. Yes. You have to have life together. So it's not just quality time. It is a quantity of time because you cannot manage when a person will be ready to be vulnerable. It's, it could be in the strangest of moments that you're on the treadmills next to each other and it's just that moment that happens to be, hey, can we really take some time to chat? You just can't manage those moments. So it takes proximity uh, to be ready for this kind of serendipitous work of, of God. But it also takes intentionality. Um, it, it's more than just let's you know, let's be around each other. Let's be a listening ear. Um, it takes the intentionality of having a vision for this person, which I think Barnabas must have had. This vision of who Mark could be in the kingdom of God, who he was as a child made in the image of God. And, and so having an intentional vision of, uh, not to make people a project, um, but to recognize that people are in fact intended to be renewed in their lives uh, and, and you are participating in God's work of intentional renewal. Um, so having this kind of prayerful intentionality and, and, and desire to um, move conversations uh, in certain directions, I, I think those are all vital uh, in, in the work of journeying with other people.
That's awesome. That's so helpful. Uh, just as we all navigate these times and, and walk through that, um, what great examples. And there's one other area that I really like to explore with you, and that is um, here at ECFA, our mission is enhancing trust in Christ-centered churches and ministries. We really believe in the power of trust. And so I want to ask you, as we really kind of just wrap up so many aspects of this conversation and what's happening within evangelicalism and culture and so on, my question for you is, do you think that evangelicals have a trust problem? <laughs> and if so, what do we do about it? Yeah. Well, we do have trust problem and it's, um, you know, myriads. Um, and uh, there's trust problems within the community uh, as evangelicalism has kind of sorted out into different um, streams and tribes within the evangelical movement that have come to question one another. Uh, so there's trust issues within the movement itself. Um, but I, mind you, historically, that's very much been the case uh, among the people of God. We are, as I've said earlier, a fallen people, redeemed, being redeemed even more, but nonetheless sinful. Um, so there's trust issues within. There's also trust issues without, mm -hmm. you know, kind of mm -hmm. toward the outside community that have deeply questioned, are we a presence of good? Um, are we a blessing to the country or are we sources of increased polarization? Um, I also think there's a trust issue with respect to God. Um, to what extent are we really entrusting um, solutions that do not reflect uh, the way of Christ, you know, trusting in political machinations or trusting in a technique of ministry to resolve things, trusting in what is so true of Amer the American entrepreneurial spirit. We are a country of immigrants who have come because they have all in their DNA some sort of courageous, risk-taking, entrepreneurial mm. spirit. What else will get you on a boat, a plane, uh, to come to a country uh, and start anew, right? So there's something within the psyche that's like that. But I think that results, that, that results in, in a kind of Christianity that often is quick to trust our own abilities uh, to find a 10-step solution um, to a problem <laughs> or, you know, uh, some kind of mnemonic tool or acronym to get us along uh, rather than what the persecuted church throughout the world knows, as I've talked about, our brothers and sisters in the global church where a faith is not um, a reduction to a technique, but it is a desperate dependence upon God. And I think we have a trust issue. We have the luxury uh, of life in America, um, and we need to have this kind of desperate faith. Um, and trust is absolutely essential because what other currency do we have? Um, ultimately, the influence of the gospel is, is one of um, moral influence that's predicated on trust. Um, you cannot enforce people um, you should not mandate their conversions. It is on the basis of a winsome presentation, a lived life of faith that, um, that has that kind of influence. Um, and so, yeah, there are some serious trust issues, um, perhaps maybe more pronounced in our particular moment and very specific to our particular moment. But there are also trust issues that are just the perpetual perennial um, trust issues of, of what it means to be human. We are by nature tribal. We are by nature, you know, tends to be suspicious of others. We're sinful. And we like our own solutions rather than depending upon God. And that's just the, the perennial problem of humanity <clears throat> that we have um, underlying the particular problem of our moment. Well, and such a good reminder, too, that Ultimately, you know, the more Christ-like we, we become, <laughs> the more we can be trusted. Yeah. So such a good word. Um, well, I want to end here, too, with I, 
so much of what you shared has been incredibly helpful already. <laughs> but if folks want to continue to engage in the work of NAE, um, what are some other ways that you're helping uh, on a practical level? Where do folks turn to to you for resources? And, uh, how, and also, how do they just stay in touch with what's going on at NAE? Yeah, I would encourage folks. Thank you, Michael. It's very kind of you. Um, I would encourage folks to go to our website, uh, nae.org. And uh, there's a wealth of resources there that you could um, look up and gain on any particular uh, issue. But there's one document that I would point people's attention to, and that is a document called For the Health of the Nation. And uh, in it um, is laid out principles of what does it mean for us as evangelicals to engage civilly in the civic issues of our day. Okay. And then what does it mean to have um, a biblical perspective on some of the great issues that confront us? Uh, and there are um, eight different issues that we lay out. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, encompassing everything that Christians um, need to be concerned about, but it does give in a theological and practical imagination of the breadth and the comprehensive scope of what it means to be good news people. Um, that document, I would highly encourage folks to go to. Um, it enables us to see what does it look like to be engaged in civic society and not become partisan in our political affiliations uh, in a way that is polarizing and divisive. Um, of course, we're going to have differences. Of, of course, in the end, people will vote differently. But the manner in which we hold our positions, as well as what those positions are, the scope of which we consider the implications of faith touching upon, uh, these, I think, are captured in that document. So um, I'd like to just point people straight to that document. For the health of the nation, you can find it at www.nae.org. Very good. Well, we'll also include a link to that in the notes to the podcast as well. Uh, you said for the good of the nation? For the health for, of the nation. For the health of the nation. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Walter, thank you so much for just investing your time uh, and so many great insights in today's conversation. Uh, we appreciate it so much and we appreciate your leadership and we are cheering you on and, and grateful for all that you and NAE are doing. Michael, thank you. What, what a joy this has been. And thank you for the work that you're doing in helping uh, Christian organizations live with integrity. Uh, and that is vital to this process of trust and honoring God. Well, thank you. Yep, it's our pleasure. Look forward to the next time we get the opportunity to be together.